All right, all right. Welcome back. Uh, again, my name is Al, and I am the pastor, and I've been the pastor of Perch uh, since we started it four years ago. Um, typically, I like to uh, do these uh, video sermons uh, outside um, just to show you some greenery and stuff in the background, but, you know, it's been raining this weekend, and it's a little cold outside, so I'm in our chaplain's office at the hospital, and I wanted to position myself in front of a bunch of books. Or this is not, these are not my books. These are um, the books belonging to the chaplain's uh, office. Because I wanted to look smart. You know, I wanted to like convince you all that like I'm much smarter than I am. So I'm standing in front of a bunch of books that are not mine. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's uh, great to have you joining us for our Lent series again. Uh, and today we're talking about doubt. We're talking about um, faith and doubt. And the reason why we're talking about this is because um, uh, I, I've been sharing, uh, I, I feel like I've been pretty vulnerable in my messages for the past uh, several months, um, several years. I'm a pretty open person. And uh, I've gone through uh, a lot of highs and lows, uh, many high highs and many low lows. And, um, you know, I, I'm a very uh, critical person uh, uh, for myself. I'm very critical of myself. And I don't want to get into too many of the reasons why that is the case. Um, you know, a lot of it maybe comes from childhood. A lot of it comes from, like, trauma. A lot of it comes from uh, maybe some, like, insecurities or whatever. But for whatever reason, I'm very critical of myself. And you know, whenever I make a mistake or whenever things don't go as planned, um, it's easy for me to feel like a failure, right? And it's easy for me to feel like a failure. And th that's a word that none of us um, really like. And it's something that we try to avoid. And it's, uh, it, just, it just feels like it's, it's negative in every single way. Uh, but lately, as I'm reading books, reading articles, and even hearing podcasts about the importance of failure in every human's uh, well-being and uh, growth and self-development, um, I, I, I couldn't really figure out what they meant by failure. Now, I know what they mean, right? They, they're saying uh, we have to try different things and make mistakes and fail in order to learn from those uh mistakes and, and grow. Um, but I think, I was thinking about it some more and there needs to be some sort of distinctions because there are some sort of failures that can help us grow and that can even be beneficial as long as we are willing to uh, look at it through that lens. Uh, but there's other kind of failures that no matter what you do, no matter how you look at it, um, they're bad, right? They're, 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 you, you can't really do much with it and and they're supposed to in many ways like some failures we're not supposed to um, learn from them or, or grow from them and so I, I was thinking about it and I, I realized I figured out that there are actually three types of failures there are three types of failures and when we say the word failure when we understand the concept of failure uh, these are three of the things that most typically come to mind, okay? The first one 
is moral failure. Okay, moral failure. This is those, these are those examples of like CEOs, um, leaders, political leaders, or maybe even like religious leaders who have kind of like a falling from grace because of a moral failure. You know, uh, most oftentimes um, it has to do with the, the three big temptations, which is um, sex, money, and power, right? It's one of those three things that cause a leader of some kind or, or, or a person to have this kind of moral failure. Um, they cheated on their partner or they stole money from their business or they were being, being shady. Um, uh, they're being bullies uh, in the church or whatever it is, right? It's some sort of like moral failure and typically has to do with one of the three temptations, sex, money, or power. Um, this, and this is one of those ways that like you can't really like become a better person from. I guess you could if you like pay your, you know, uh, pay your dues, like you go to prison or you know, you lose your wife or you lose your business and perhaps you can learn from those things, right? But overall, the, this is like the big failure. This, this is the big F word. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't make a joke about that. But it's the, it's the big failures, right? Um, and the second type of failure is uh, losses. Losses. These are um, things that happen to us. These are events uh, and, and losses that we experience along the way that perhaps are unavoidable, okay? Um, I shared last week that, um, you know, I, I lost my marriage, right? Uh, last year, um, my ex-wife and I, we separated, and now we're in the process of getting a divorce. And for so long, for so many months, I felt like a failure as a husband, but if I really stop and think about it, if I really, if I'm really honest with myself, not overly critical, because if I'm overly critical, that's not being honest with myself. If I'm really being honest with myself and being objective, I don't think there's much that I could have done to prevent this from happening. And so a lot of times what we consider uh, to be failures are actually just losses that are out of our control. And this typically is not uh, opportunities to grow or like move forward and you know just things happen in life right and they're just more like losses um, but we often categorize these things as failures and the last area of a quote-unquote failure is learning failures learning failures and these are uh, mistakes that we make along the way where we can learn from or we can grow from or it can be opportunities for us to develop more. And this is the kind of failure that God actually wants us to uh, experience uh, on a regular basis. Uh, these are opportunities for us to grow uh, spiritually, emotionally, uh, even mentally, uh, where you keep trying, right? You keep trying and Oftentimes, like, we're going to mess up. We're going to make mistakes. And, you know, you probably may have heard the statistic that, like, um, some of the best baseball players in the world, some of the best baseball players in Major League Baseball have a 30% hitting average, which means they miss 70% of the time. <laughs> okay, um, 
you may have heard, um, was it Wayne Gretzky or Michael Jordan said, uh, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Um, but those are all learning, growing opportunities. And these are the types of failures that God actually wants us to regularly experience. Now, one of the things that come out of failure is doubt. Doubt. And that's really like what we're focusing on today, right? Um, and why does doubt happen? And why do we have doubt? And in many ways, that uh, failure serves that purpose of allowing us to grow and learn from those experiences. Doubt is also there to help us learn and grow and to develop ourselves and to grow in spirituality, grow in our um, emotional health. And a lot of times those failures can lead to doubt. And doubt is not necessarily a bad thing. And the reason why we're talking about doubt today is because we are in our Lent series. And as we are waiting uh, with intention, as we talked about last week, right? Intentionally waiting. There are many times where doubt creeps into our mind. Like, what am I waiting for? Where is God? Where is the opportunity that I've been waiting for for so long? Am I even supposed to do this? And there's all these doubts that come up in our minds. And doubt actually serves a purpose in our faith, in our spirituality, in our everyday lives. As long as we look at it through the right lens, just like how we can look at failure through the right lens, and it serves as an opportunity for us to learn and to grow. So today we're looking at um, the gospel according to Luke as we talk about doubt today. So today's passage comes to us from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. John's disciples, now this is John the Baptist, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. All right, so uh, we just read from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. And this is not a really um, well-known passage or a passage that's um, preached on a lot. Uh, Luke is a very popular book, okay? Luke, the Gospel according to Luke is a popular book to be preached from um, because it's, it's one of the four Gospels, okay? Um, now... Uh, the reason why the Bible has 
four Gospels of Jesus Christ um, from the perspective of four different people is to give us a bigger picture of who Jesus Christ is. And Luke has a unique perspective because, one, he is the only non-Jew to write a Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and John are all Jews, and uh, Luke is not a Jew, right? So his, his perspective of Jesus Christ as a quote-unquote Gentile, um, like you know, most of us are Gentile, uh, is really, really valuable, okay? Uh, two, he is a physician by trade, okay? His occupation is, you know, he, he's a physician. And three, he is a historian. Uh, he is a big history buff. He's a big history nerd. So before he wrote um, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, he took um, many people's like eyewitness accounts into perspective or into account. Okay, he took many people's perspectives and stories, and recorded it and documented it and put them all together to create his gospel. And this uh, story is a really really unique story that is kind of highlighted in the Gospel of Luke. That it's not in the other gospels in the other versions of Jesus Christ's story. Uh, this passage is um, basically about John the Baptist questioning. Jesus' authority, which is kind of a taboo thing to do. Uh, this passage is not preached on a lot, like I said, because it primarily deals with doubt. It's a passage about John the Baptist's doubt. Now, now it's taboo because, you know, Jesus Christ is the one being doubted, right? He's the one being questioned. But it's also more taboo because John the Baptist is a big name in the Bible. He's one of the heroes of faith, right? And he's the way, or he's the one who kind of paved the way for Jesus Christ to begin his ministry. So for John the Baptist to tell his students, his disciples, his followers to go to Jesus and question him is really uh, unexpected, okay? And it's really taboo. So, this just kind of shows us that even someone uh, with a faith uh, as strong uh, as John the Baptist, even someone who is as like um, a, a bold spiritual leader like John the Baptist, can still doubt God. They can still have their doubts. Now, doubt is something that we all struggle with, whether you're a Christian, whether you're, an, you're not Christian, whether you're Catholic, whether you're atheist, whether you're agnostic, whether you're Buddhist. Doubt is something that we all struggle with, but we don't really talk about very much. And it's very unfortunate because it actually is uh, supposed to be a regular part of our faith. Uh, right, the great mystic writer um, Thomas Merton said, If you find God with great ease, perhaps it is not God you have found. Whew. If, you have, if you found God with great ease, perhaps it is not God that you have found. So let's go back to today's passage, okay? John the Baptist, right? Um, John the Baptist, as I said, he's a hero of faith. He kind of paved the way for Jesus before Jesus began his ministry. 
uh, before Jesus began like preaching and teaching about the kingdom of heaven, about the kingdom of God. Jesus' primary goal was to bring the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And he did that by talking about the kingdom of God, teaching about the kingdom of God, and uh, performing miracles to show uh, viscerally what the kingdom of God is supposed to be about. Right? It's, about it's supposed to be about healing. It's supposed to be about life. It's supposed to bring, uh, be about peace. And John the Baptist paved the way for Jesus to begin his ministry. And so why is it that after Jesus began his ministry, John questions Jesus? Why is it that John the Baptist, who proclaimed boldly um, just a few months before this happened, okay, uh, when Jesus began his ministry, right, he proclaimed boldly that Jesus was the Messiah, which is the one that the Israelites, the Jews, have been waiting for for thousands and thousands of years to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth. Why is it that John the Baptist was doubting God, was doubting Jesus Christ? It was John the Baptist who said, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet, John the Baptist is the one who was questioning Jesus in today's passage. And so we have to recognize the gravity of this, these, um, these questions that, Jesus told, or that John the Baptist told his disciples, his students, to ask Jesus. Uh, some New Testament scholars uh, presume that John was being subjective here, uh, that John was questioning Jesus' authority because of the situation that he was in. Um, uh, because prior to this, uh, John um, was uh, imprisoned uh, for doing what God had told him to do, uh, which was to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, right? And he, he probably believed that he would serve alongside Jesus Christ um, to kind of complete um, his mission of bringing the kingdom of God here on earth. Yet, right when Jesus began his ministry, John was in prison. And shortly thereafter, John would be uh, beheaded. That's how he would die. Because um, the Jewish king at the time, um, I say Jewish king because he was kind of like a puppet king that the Roman Empire placed to kind of um, satisfy uh, the Jewish people. Uh, but King uh, Herod Antipas was this kind of crazy, bloodthirsty king, and he didn't want to share his throne with anybody. So when King Herod heard that Jesus Christ was going to be the new king of Israel, he was crazy. He went crazy. And so he tried to uh, arrest anyone who was supporting him, and John the Baptist was one of them. And so you can understand how um, difficult it must have been for John the Baptist, and he had these expectations of how things were going to work out for him, that he believed that he was going to serve alongside Jesus Christ, or at the very least, uh, support him in his own way, and to see the kingdom of God being uh, manifest here on earth, and that was cut short. So you can see why he's beginning to doubt, right? He, you can see why he's having a hard time. You can see why he's struggling. Um, 
we have, and, and this is a very applicable to us as well, right? We don't doubt God when things are going well, right? We don't doubt God when everything's going smoothly and everything's easy and um, there's, no, there's no problems or anything like that, right? We doubt God when God doesn't meet our expectations. We have certain expectations of God and when God doesn't behave the way that we want Him to behave, we doubt Him. But that also puts us in a very precarious situation. Because if God does not behave the way that we want Him to behave, then in many ways, like we want to be God over God. It's like we, we are the ones telling God what to do when it should be the other way around, where God is the one telling us to do, how, how God is telling us to live, and we go accordingly to that. There is something we need to understand about doubt, okay, before uh, we get, get into the three uh, benefits of doubt, okay, is that um, doubt is subjective. Doubt is subjective. Um, John the Baptist's situation might have caused him uh, and maybe his disciples to question Jesus, but most others would not have made that connection between Jesus' credibility and John's imprisonment, right? John the Baptist's imprisonment was causing him to doubt, but that's because John was in a very dark uh, place. He was struggling. He was having a hard time, and so he doubted God. The struggle that you might be having might be making you doubt God, but that's very subjective, right? Other people might look at your situation and not make that connection. Oh, you lost, um, you lost your job. So then, of course, like, yeah, you don't believe that God exists. For other people, they, they might not get that, but for you, because you're in such a painful and difficult place, um, you begin to doubt God. And so doubt is um, subject, subjective. Um, and because doubt is subjective, it's relative. Okay, what makes one person doubt will not make another per the next person doubt. So what causes, um, so the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, where does my doubt come from? Why is this particular doubt causing me to struggle so much? Uh, the great American author, uh, Flannery O'Connor, said this, There is no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. But I can only see it as the process by which faith is deepened. There is no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. But I can only see it as the process by which faith is deepened. When we confront our doubts, it can actually lead us to a much deeper and genuine faith. And one of the benefits of doubt is this. Doubt keeps us honest. Doubt keeps us honest. You show someone who's been a Christian, who's been a follower of God for many, many years, uh, who's never doubted God, 
or question God. I'll show you someone with a faith that's either dishonest or shallow or non-critical. Faith without doubt is... Mm, this is going to sound extremely judgmental, um, but faith without doubt is um, not really mature. And I say that um, with uh, carefully. I say that carefully because whoever says that uh, they have faith without doubt is kind of like just fooling themselves. If you live life and you're not living life like under a rock, if you're actually like living life, going through the struggles, going through like the pain, going through the highs and the lows, um, like I've been through, like most humans have been through. If you go through life, uh, you're going to encounter some struggles that will like question your faith, that will make you question your faith. Um, and faith without doubt uh, not only keeps us honest, or, no, sorry, uh, faith with doubt keeps us honest, um, but faith without doubt can actually be quite dangerous. Faith without doubt can easily lead into legalism, uh, extreme fundamentalism, or even terrorism. Think about it. Think about the people who like have blind faith and just do whatever they're told without ever questioning it. Uh, without ever doubting it, those are the people who end up being um, like terrorists sometimes. Uh, scripture teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, that's um, a passage. That, that's a statement that appears a, a couple times in the book of Proverbs and um, in the book of Psalms. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And... Uh, Oftentimes, we fear what we do not know. So the irony of faith is that in order to truly know God, we have to acknowledge that we don't know Him at all. If we ever get to the point in our lives, in our faith, where we say, I know everything there is to know about God, that's a very dangerous place to be. That's an arrogant place to be. And it's a very dangerous place to be. And it's not true. So if you ever get, if, if you ever meet someone who says, I know everything there is to know about God, or I know everything there is to know about Christianity, I know everything there is to know about religion, I know everything there is to know about spirituality. If you ever meet anyone who like says that, run away. <laughs> uh, they're probably toxic people, all right? We will never come to a place uh, in our faith where we will know everything there is to know about God. Absolute certainty uh, is never guaranteed. In fact, the complete opposite is true. Uncertainty is guaranteed. And when there is uncertainty, there will inevitably be doubt. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, uh, Apostle Paul said, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Uh, I preached from this um, a few weeks ago uh, from 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and, you know, we know it as like the, 
chapter of love. Most people know it as the chapter of love. But I love the, um, the end of this passage where Paul talks about as we live here on earth, we're only going to see bits and pieces. We're, we're never going to see the full picture. Not with absolute clarity. This is why um, Paul said, uh, For I know in part, then I shall know fully. In this life, we only catch bits and pieces of the full picture. We, in our limited vision, with our limited minds, uh, with our limited thinking, uh, we can only know and grasp so much. We will never know with absolute certainty all there is to know about God. And as soon as we understand that, and as soon as we um, can embrace that doubt is there to uh, keep us honest, that actually helps us understand God more. You see, um, going back to uh, John the Baptist, right? Uh, John's experience teaches us something very valuable about doubt. Essentially, um, there are three forms of doubt, okay? Uh, intellectual doubt, uh, emotional doubt, and volitional doubt. Intellectual doubt is when you begin to think critically uh, regarding matters of faith or spirituality. You begin asking questions like, did God really create the universe in seven days? Uh, did Moses really part the Red Sea? Did Jesus truly resurrect uh, uh, from the dead after three days? Okay, these are examples of like intellectual doubt. Um, and this is what uh, one of Jesus' uh, disciples, Thomas, uh, was expressing when he asked Jesus uh, to show the scars on his hands after he resurrected. Okay, that's intellectual doubt. Emotional doubt is when you question God because of maybe personal experiences. Maybe your heart doesn't quite believe what um, your head believes. You ask questions like, if God is love, why did I have abusive parents? Why doesn't God reveal more of himself to me? If God wants me to be more like him, why is my life so hard? Okay, these are examples that uh, someone with uh, emotional doubt would have. Then there's volitional doubt, which uh, can be potentially the most detrimental to our faith. Uh, this is where you know that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe um, the Scriptures. You also, you're also convicted in your heart that God is real. And maybe you even sense that the Holy Spirit is with us and she's guiding us and she's speaking to us. Yet, you don't know if you can fully commit yourself to Him. That's volitional doubt. Uh, in his book entitled Finding Faith, author Brian McLaren described the various faith stages that a Christian journeys through. Simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and maturity. Simplicity is when, you know, like uh, kind of having like a childlike faith, right? Uh, we all have to start there. And then you realize like, oh, uh, some things are a little bit more complex than uh, what I was taught or what I once believed. And then it becomes perplex, meaning like this is kind of like that deconstruction uh, season. A lot of people go through a deconstruction season of their faith. 
Many people um, stay Christian after that. Some people uh, walk away from the faith after that. And then there's maturity. If you can uh, go through that deconstruction phase and uh, stick with it, uh, that's really where deep, mature Christian faith comes from. And doubt is a huge part of complexity and perplexity. So as we grow in our faith and as we get older and we begin to see some conflicts or some complexities in our faith, uh, doubt is inevitably going to be a part of that process. It's a reminder that God is God and we are not. We will never know all there is to know about faith, about spirituality, about God. And that not only keeps us honest, but that also keeps us humble. Doubt keeps us humble. Doubt keeps us humble. And I don't know where you are in your spiritual journeys. Uh, I don't know what stage of faith you're in. Uh, maybe you're in the complexity stage. Maybe you're in the perplexity stage. Maybe you're in the maturity stage. Um, if you're uh, a new or young uh, believer and the world is colorful and full of sunshine and singing birds, um, just wait a little bit. <laughs> uh, or maybe you're in the thick of uh, complex faith and your brain is chock full of questions and doubts. Just stay with it. Stay with it. Stay with God. Uh, he's with you. He's not scared of your questions and doubts. God is with you. Or you might be in the perplexed state where you're disillusioned with the idea of faith or with God or with church or with Christianity. Um, and you're waiting for all your questions to be answered and your fears to be relieved. But deep down, you know they won't. Mature Christians are not mature because they know all the answers. Mature Christians are mature because they're okay with their questions being unanswered forever. Mature Christians are mature because they're okay with sitting with their doubts. And a lot of that is because it keeps us humble. It keeps us humble. <clears throat> now, um, before Jesus uh, ascended into heaven. So after Jesus resurrected from the dead, uh, that's Easter that's coming up, right? That's why we celebrate Easter. Uh, he stuck around for 40 more days. Not a lot of people know that. Uh, he actually interacted with like hundreds of people after he resurrected from the dead. Not a lot of people know that, right? And then finally, um, he ascended into heaven. Okay, he went up to heaven so that the Holy Spirit can come down and she can be our counselor, our guide, our comforter, our helper, um, the voice of God. Now, uh, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 and 17, it says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. These are the 11 disciples who lived with Jesus, who followed him, 
who learned from his teachings, who performed miracles right alongside Jesus. They saw him die on the cross, and then three days later, he resurrected. They hung out with him for over a month. For over a month. And now when Jesus is about to be ascended into heaven, they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Okay, some doubted, like meaning, I don't know how many exactly, but it's these 11 disciples. Some is like more than two, all right? <laughs> Some of these guys doubted Jesus, even though they did all of these amazing things with him and witnessed Jesus do all of these amazing things, including being resurrected from the dead, and yet they still doubted. It's not just Thomas. It's not just the disciple Thomas, okay? Uh, they all worshipped him. And they still doubted. So the two are not mutually exclusive. Just because you worship God does not mean you can't doubt Him. Okay? Just because you're a follower of Jesus Christ does not mean you can't ever doubt Him. And just because you're listening and paying attention to the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you can't doubt Her. We may never know God fully and we may never know God's will fully with absolute certainty but we can still be absolutely committed to him now let's go back to uh, today's passage in Luke chapter 7 when John's disciples approached Jesus with this question um, what I found interesting is that Jesus didn't directly answer the question. And this is kind of like a tactic that maybe um, a lot of rabbis did back in the first century, like Jewish rabbis. And, and, and a lot of them still do this um, today. Uh, the question John asked um, uh, and kind of told his students to ask Jesus was fairly straightforward. Yet Jesus' response was not. Jesus could have simply said, Yes, tell John that I am the Messiah. But Jesus didn't do that. Look at what it says in verse 22. Uh, this is Jesus' response to John the Baptist's question of, you know, are you really the Messiah? Okay. Um, in verse 22, it's, uh, Jesus said, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, these are all things that John the Baptist knew about Jesus. These are all things that he knew about him already. He already heard about and witnessed Jesus performing all these miracles. And they heard Jesus like proclaiming the good news. This is not new to them. Uh, so, why did Jesus go around the question instead of directly answering the question? And part of it is because Jesus is okay with doubt. God is okay with your doubt. Jesus, maybe even in a weird way, it's almost like Jesus wanted John to keep doubting him uh, because Jesus was so comfortable with these lines of questions. Then look at what uh, Jesus said in verse 23. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, when we see that word stumble, okay, um, we might assume 
he's talking about doubt, right? Like, blessed is anyone who does not doubt on account of me. But that's actually not what the word stumble means, okay? Uh, the word stumble means to just stop or to quit. It means to like just, um, it's this word that means like to fall down, but to just like give up, okay? Uh, it, it just means to stop or to quit. And that's not what doubting is. That's not what doubting is. And part of the reason why God is so comfortable with our doubts is because doubt keeps us hungry. Doubt keeps us hungry. Not only does doubt keep us honest, and not only does doubt keep us humble, doubt keeps us hungry. We see examples of people all throughout the Bible who struggled with doubt. Some doubted God because... Um, uh, some doubted God uh, ended up pretty badly, while others who doubted God became stronger in their faith. Look at uh, the example of Adam and Eve. Okay, they were given the command not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, then a serpent came up to them and said, Did God really say you can't eat from that tree? Kind of like putting doubt in their minds. But that wasn't their downfall. Right? Being confronted with this question being uh, confronted with doubt was not their downfall. What was their downfall was them actually like disobeying God. Okay, that was their downfall. And then if you look at the example of like um, Abraham and Sarah, okay, in contrast, God made a promise to them that they would have a child despite their old age. And this idea was so ridiculous that it made Sarah laugh out loud. Yet they trusted God um, after like decades and decades and now Abraham and Sarah are the parents of many 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 people so doubt in and of itself um, does not cause people to stumble it's what you do with that doubt that can either make your faith stronger or weaker sometimes people are so afraid of doubting their faith that they let any little doubt that they have utterly crush them. But God is comfortable with your doubts. So should we. So the question shouldn't be, should I have doubt? Uh, whether we like it or not, uh, we all have doubts in our faith. Rather, the question should be, what am I going to do with this doubt? What am I going to do with my doubts? Am I going to let it be a learning, growing opportunity? Or am I going to let my doubt cause me to stumble and just quit? Am I going to let my doubt strengthen my faith or weaken my faith? It's precisely because we have doubts that fuel us to strive after God, to stay hungry after God. Because if we knew everything there was to know about God, What's the purpose of faith? What's the purpose of faith? A few years ago, um, a pastor of Redeemer Church, a founding pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City, Pastor Tim Keller, gave a lecture at Google headquarters uh, up in Silicon Valley to several hundred Google employees. The topic at hand was about faith and doubt. And he gave an interesting illustration. 
<clears throat> he said, imagine you are falling off a cliff and you see a fairly large sized branch sticking out of the ground. The only chance you have of surviving is if you reach out and grab hold of that branch for dear life. The fate of your life literally hangs on that branch. Ultimately, you're putting your faith in that branch. It doesn't matter if your faith in that branch is great or small. You realize it's either you grab hold of that branch or you fall to your demise. And uh, he said this, it's the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith, that saves you. It's the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith, that saves you. This is precisely why Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, nothing is impossible. So embrace your doubts. Embrace your doubts. Because doubt will keep us honest, humble, and hungry. So the reflection question I want to leave us with this week is, what doubts do I currently have that are opportunities to grow in my faith? What doubts do I currently have that are opportunities to grow in my faith? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for causing us to wait. I thank you for our questions that go unanswered. I thank you for our doubts. For in those places, revival happens. In those places, we are awakened. In those places, we lean more towards you. Help us to sit comfortably with our questions and doubts and may it draw us closer to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week.